Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Pastor Yuri Brito entitled The Nazarite Head Crusher, a look at the death of Samson. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out more from Pastor Yuri Brito in the Word MP3 collection on Canon Plus. This morning, I want to walk through a narrative in the book of Judges, a familiar one that just brings some insights, and then we'll prepare ourselves for worship. That's what I want to do. And I want to focus in particular in the narrative of Judges chapter 13 through 16, which is the famous narrative of Samson. What I want to do is just touch on a couple of elements of that very familiar narrative, and then make a couple of applications as we prepare our hearts. One of the things that's very crucial in terms of a prominent theme that is played out throughout the scriptures is the prominent theme we call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. That is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, a very central piece in the furniture of the scriptures. Genesis 3.15, the passage says, remember the promise, it comes in the midst of a, of a curse, but it also says in the end that the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the servant. It's a theme that is going to appear again and again in the sacred text, but it appears with a, a certain level of precision in the life of Samson in Judges chapter 13 through 16, specifically at the end of that narrative. The argument for the book of Samson is a really fascinating one. I think he deserves much more attention than the kind of attention he's received, which has generally been a very negative attention focus on this great man. But suffice to say, what we do know about Samson is that he is an ambassador of God sent to a pagan people, namely the Philistines. And we know that he was one who was chosen by God because back in Judges 13, in the description of his birth, in the elaboration of that birth, we know that he was a man in whom the Spirit was stirring for a great work, Judges 13.25. Now, by the time that Samson comes to the end of his journey, to the end of his life, he has already faced, if you remember the narrative, innumerable difficulties and hardships. He has fought wildly on behalf of God and wildly on behalf of Israel, his people. But Samson, as you also know, has brought many of these hardships upon himself. Hardships are sometimes self-imposed, aren't they? And in other times, they are simply God pressing us a little harder to reveal your true character, the true nature of your calling, of who you are, of who you were called to minister, who you're called to be. At the end of the Samson narrative, in Judges 16, which is a wonderful description in some ways of how the church functions its way through history. Our hero is near death. He is near the end of his life. He is to be killed for a particular reason. The text tells us that he's to be killed because he has brought much vengeance upon the enemies of Yahweh, much vengeance upon the Philistines, and he is being cursed. But then there is a touch of optimism in Judges 16, verse 22. There's a touch of of optimism in that passage. And it says that the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. The hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. This is very significant because, as you recall, 
Delilah cut Samson's hair. Did she? No, she didn't. She called upon the rulers to come and to cut his hair. It wasn't Delilah that cut his hair. It was the rulers that came whom she called. There was a strategic dimension to everything that Samson did. And Delilah fell very much into the trap there. He is being cursed, but there is a touch of optimism. What we see then of his life is his hair is beginning to grow. Hair in the Bible has a particular symbolic purpose, and it means glory. Hair means glory. Samson had lost his glory, but what we're seeing now is that he is regaining his glory. This is all part of the divine strategy of God. He is regaining his glory, but we still see that at the end of chapter 16, at the end of Samson's life, the Philistines have the upper hand. And it seems at this point that the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 is not going to take place. That the seed of the woman is not going to crush the head of the serpent, but the opposite is going to occur. And the Philistines, as you remember, have a quite a unique history and a placement in the religiosity of the ancient world. They assume that the fertility of their culture stemmed from, had its genesis in, Dagon their god. Dagon was the god of grain, the god of fertility. And so what is about to happen is Samson is going to be sacrificed. And that sacrifice, according to the Philistines, is going to be a win, a victory for their god, for their particular religious cause. And indeed, they are winning. Because we know the people of Israel, they are being oppressed. There is disobedience encompassing the land. The people are enslaved. And now her representative, the man who is to be the paragon of goodness and kindness and mercy, who is to represent Yahweh himself, now he is enslaved. Samson is a picture of Israel whose glory is departed. But God is a God who remembers his promise. And the promise is the promise in Genesis 3.15. The promise that the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. And here in verse 22, there is an indication that the favor of God is resting upon Samson. Literally, the favor of God is Sabbathing upon our hero, Samson. And the regrowth of his hair is a very indicative element in the text. It's not just given in vain for us. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. This is a very unique feature of the scriptures. It gives us very particular details because it serves the greater narrative. The fact that his hair is regrowing is a sign that the benediction, the smile, the presence of God will once again fall upon not only Samson, but the people of God. And it is right in this humiliation that what we see here is a turning to God by Samson. The text implies this again by the growth of his hair. It's made explicit later in verse 28 in Samson's prayer, which in many ways echoes a lot of the history of the prophet Jonah, which is another conversation. But Samson realizes that God's first call, the call in Genesis 13, that he would be one who would be set aside, consecrated to be Israel's ambassador, servant, that call now needs to be reassumed. He needs to put on his clerical collar. He should never have strayed. And this reminds us, as I said, of the prophet Jonah. Remember Jonah? He's bringing salvation to the Gentiles, but it was only when he was swallowed up into the depths of the sea that there he cries out in chapter 2, from the belly of Sheol, you hear me. And now 
Not only Jonah, now Samson's going to affirm this same reality when he realizes that he has in many ways abandoned his mission in death, in dungeon, in danger. Yahweh hears, where can I flee from your spirit? You are there, Yahweh. And so it's this, in this reconciliatory moment in the regrowth of his hair at the end of Samson's life that we begin to see the covenant promises beginning to be fulfilled, beginning to take shape, beginning to be renewed, beginning to be redeemed. God renews not only Samson's glory, but he renews his strength. That's what the text says. This is a, a picture that if Israel turns away from God's ways, God will renew her strength and bring her back. God is a God who reconciles prodigals. He brings them back to the father's house with a feast. God will keep his promises to restore Israel's fortunes, and he will send a seed to crush the head of the serpent. That promise must be fulfilled. That pattern must be repeated. That rhythm must take place. That song needs to be sung. So we see this picture unfolding here in verses 23 and 24 of Judges 16. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. For they said, our god has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god for they said, our god has given our enemy into our hand. The ravager, the destroyer, the avenger of our country who has slain many of us. It really is interesting. The description we see here in Judges 16 is practically a description of a liturgical service. Everyone has a liturgy. Everyone has a liturgy. And certainly the pagans have a liturgy. The pagans have a very elaborate liturgy. The unrighteous, they rejoice over the demise of the righteous. The unrighteous, just like the righteous, the righteous have pleasing sacrifices that are acceptable to God. The unrighteous have unpleasing sacrifices that God detests. Every liturgy contains a sacrifice. And here, they're praising their God. They're rejoicing. They're dancing in behalf, on behalf of Dagon. Samson gave credit to God for his victory. Paganism does the same thing. Now, the Philistines give credit to their God for their victory. See, the question of worship is the question that is raised for us in Genesis 3.15. Whom will you worship? The seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent? Whose fire is going to stand at the end of that sacrificial liturgical worship? Whose fire is going to consume? Whose fire is going to last? Whose sacrifice is going to be acceptable? Is it Dagon's God, the true God, the true hero of this entire affair? Is Yahweh a false God, as the Philistines believe? This is a question of which God you will serve. This is a war of the gods. It's a war unto the death. The war of the gods established in Genesis 3.15 is a war unto the death, a restatement of everything we believe to be true in God's covenant promises. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the servant. There is no neutrality. It's a test of sacrifices, which you see here in the description of Judges 16. And the church would do very well to consider what is happening here in this passage. Because Israel is put to the test through her great hero. Because Israel has not walked with the Lord her God. Samson becomes the embodiment. The embodiment of Israel's history. God is not judging Israel here because he delights in her misery. God doesn't 
tyrannize Israel in the midst of her pain. God doesn't tyrannize us either. God is not judging the United States because we have bad leaders by giving us bad leaders. I love the way uh, James Jordan writes. He says, if the church is oppressed in America today, it is because the church has been faithless. It is not the Dagons, the Philistines, the humanists, the statists with whom we must have to deal. He says, it is the Lord with whom we must wrestle. It is the Lord with whom we must worship and adore. And when that is faltering within the history and the liturgy and the practice and the rituals and the rhythms of the church, God gives us over to false leaders. See, our problem has never been truly, our problem has never been truly fundamentally political, and neither is the politics the solution for it. <laughs> Two days in D.C. will teach you that. Our problem is one of witness. Our problem is one of worship. It has always been. We're not hated enough. You are not hated enough. We are always seeking to find too much common ground, right? Too much common ground. We want bipartisan bills that give the church 30% and the seculars get 70 We are terrible negotiators because we want to be remarkable compromisers. But at this point in Samson's life, there's no more negotiation. There's no more time to negotiate. He has been targeted. And I want you to see what happens in the liturgy of the Philistines here, because the Philistine liturgy includes Samson's name as the destroyer, the ravager of Israel. He has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When you serve God faithfully, you get a mention in the secular liturgies of this world. That's your goal in life, to get a mention in the secular liturgies of our country. One of the great features of pagan worship, what they have always done historically, is the display of their enemies. In every era of history, the wicked always displays their delight in the suffering of their prisoners. It happened in the days of the Roman Empire. It happens in the days of the judges. And we see a picture of this in verse 25. Look in verse uh, 25. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may make sport for us or entertainment for us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he made sport before them. They made him stand between the pillars. Between the pillars. They brought Samson out to kick him right in the midst of his blindness, in the midst of his Misery in the midst of his weakness. It's a very familiar story. You should begin to see the kinds of parallels that we see throughout history. Because Samson is a paradigm for what you're going to see in the gospel accounts. In the gospels, remember, Jesus is betrayed by a kiss from another Delilah. Judas is beaten by the Romans. Luke's gospel says exactly what happens to Samson, happens to our Lord. They blindfolded him. He was blind. He was incapable of seeing. He couldn't see who was attacking him. And they were asking him, prophesy, who is it who hit you, Lord? Samson is serving the role of entertainment for the wicked. Samson is on display as the Philistines have their liturgical service. This is even more poignant, I think, when you read the words in, in verse 25. They made him stand where? Between the pillars. Between the pillars. And that's significant because in the ancient world, temples were symbols of the world. They were miniature images of the entire cosmos here. 
And their strength symbolized the power of their God. The more magnificent the temple, the greater, the more powerful the God that they worship. So think of it this way here. The temple had all sorts of different parts. Think of the temple as, as, a, as a human body. It had all sorts of parts. But the pillars, where Samson was right in between, the pillars were like the arms of Dagon. The pillars were the arms of Dagon upholding the entire world, according to the Philistines. They were upholding the Philistine world, but their entire universe. The pillars were the very foundation, the arms of power for the Philistine universe. So where did they put Samson? They put him right between the arms of power, right between that thing without which there is no power, there is no significance. But Samson is right in the middle as if they were to say, look how pathetic his power is in comparison to the power of our great God. Look how small he is in comparison to the power of our great God. Remember the promise of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. Remember that as we read verse 26. Verse 26. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the lad, the servant who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Verse 27. Now the house was full of men and women. All the rulers, all the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson became an entertainment, a sport unto them. And then verse 28. Then Samson called to Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh, God. Remember me. Remember your covenant promises. Strengthen me this once more. O God, that I may be avenged in the Philistine for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them. His right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Keep in mind the nature of the temple here. It represents the dwelling place of their God. Now, don't do this right now. But if you were to Google Dagon, you would see he looks just like a serpent. He is a serpentine creature. Dagon is a serpentine god. They portrayed him as a sea serpent, actually, which ties even further his connections with the narrative of the book of Jonah. The god of the Philistines is a serpent. And the text says that Samson is moved to feel the center of the pillars, as if to say, let me see truly how strong this god is. And the entire structure of the Philistine world and her god rested on those pillars. This was the very substance of their power, symbolically, literally. Samson is at the very center of the Philistine world. In fact, not only is he the center of the Philistine world, not only is he now confronting the very source of power of the Philistine world, but the rulers are there, the representatives are there, the lords, the congressmen, the senators, representatives of the Philistine culture, men, women, about 3,000, the Bible says. 3,000 are there, all experiencing the theater of Samson's humiliation. 
He was there to entertain. That's why he was there. He was there to cause them to laugh. He was there to be a sport unto them, to provide for them a little entertainment, to perform, to display his blindness, to display his weakness. And when they least expected it, when the world least expected it, Samson, the house of God, the church, destroyed their universities, destroyed their centers for cultural institutions, destroyed their elite powers and structures, and crushed the heads of their entire world. The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent, which is represented by all that the secular world considers to be their cherished possessions. Their cherished possessions. Just spent the last two days, did a few talks in D.C., and you just see everywhere you, my first time there, everywhere you go, there are artifacts of power. There are displays of power. Magnanimous buildings ranging from one block, two blocks, three blocks, extending everywhere. Department of Agriculture, Department of Interior Service, Department of Everything. Their entire power, the accumulation of all their power, is nothing in comparison to all power and authority given to our Lord and handed to his bride, the church. This is not just some symbolic crushing, by the way. Don't let leftists take over this passage here. This is not philosophical speculation. God calls the people of God to join in this great promise, in this great Samson project, this great church-friendly project, as we, the sons and daughters of God, are the seed-crushing people, those who rely and are united to Jesus Christ, our great Lord. The ruins of the temple of the wicked, they're all going to crumble. We can be certain of that. God is going to call us, as he is even today, in corporate worship. The first thing that takes place is he's calling us to enter into this massive project of worshiping him and therefore causing principalities and powers to shake before the God of all creation, destroying the empires of wickedness that surround us. And you can join this project, of course, in faithfulness, or you can join this project in a complexity and layered pain that Samson endured. Every time, in fact, you act contrary to God's word, you are entertaining the wicked. When the people of God live a life of consistent disobedience without repentance, they are becoming the world's freak show. But when you're here, as you are, on the Lord's Day, instead of on the golf course, probably not a temptation here in Pennsylvania, but in Florida it's a gigantic temptation. Or on the boat, when, you're, when you are a blessing to the church of our Lord, when you seek the good of the body, hospitality and care and mercy, when you offer yourself as a sacrifice unto God, then you're entertaining angels instead of demons. Our faithfulness is the definition of our attack in the theater of the wicked. It's just fine, by the way, it's just fine to be persecuted for the way we live. It's just fine to be viewed as strange or weird for how we do things. It's just fine to spend more time with God's people. It's just fine to, to drink, to enjoy, to eat. It's just fine to be considered tribal in the best sense of the word. It is not fine to entertain the values of wickedness. It is not fine to engage false gods. It is not fine to call friends who are not stirring you to righteousness. It is not fine to disrespect your parents. It is not fine to destroy the reputation of godly men. It is not fine to remain silent when wicked policies are being proposed. It is not fine 
to train up our kids in Dagon's educational system, it is not fine to play in the temples of wickedness. And the reason we need to have this conversation is because, like Samson, many times we are blinded by our preferences without ever challenging them. The seed of the woman, brothers and sisters, does not come to crush the serpent to preserve our preferential habits. Now he's here today to destroy our idols, to expose our habits so that we might align with his. God presses down Samson so that at the end he knew precisely what team he played for. And when God presses us, he's doing the exact same thing. He's moving us out of the world of neutrality into the gladness of God's Son, who is the one who stood between the pillars of this world. The very cross who was the symbol of the Roman Empire, the symbol of death, the enemy of life. Jesus stood. He felt the very weight of that wooden cross. And in one fatal act, he crushed the entire kingdom of Satan. And he brought us life and life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your mercy, for the way you have shown your kindness to us, for the endless grace that never runs dry in the reservoir of heaven, for the chalice of heaven that overflows unto us on earth, even now that we might taste of heaven, and for your people who desire to hear, to learn, and to increase in knowledge and insight so that we too might rejoice in finding our union with Jesus Christ, the one who crushed the head of the serpent. It is his name we pray. Amen. Amen. It is 10.30. we got five minutes. Yeah. All right, five minutes. Two or three questions or observations or corrections. <laughs> I'm open to everything. Any thoughts? Yes, so happens we're currently reading uh, James Jordan's commentary on the book of Judges. Oh, lovely. And a question. He stole everything from me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, what are, if you could cite the most common criticism of, of his work and what your response to that is? I've heard, I've heard his interpretive maximalism. Uh -huh. Well, very briefly, I think, the, I think the criticism towards James Jordan and typology and the kinds of things I talk about is, I think they view it as, um, okay, who is the artist of creativity for the day, right? It, it, they view it as the kind of thing that's too innovative and too speculative. And I've been interacting with him for you know, now 20, 21 years now. Um, what I have found is that if it is innovative and speculative, I have found it to draw me closer and closer to the B-I-B-L-E. And I think that is so key in our culture. So if I can see patterns and types and symbols and rhythms in the Bible that are repeated elsewhere, and here I am pointing that out, and if the connection between Samson's death and the death of Jesus is too speculative, you know, at the very least, I'm saying it today, I'm glorying in the right thing. And so, you know, if he's wrong, that's the that's the right kind of wrong I want to be in. <laughs> I, I, one of the things I tell people who are 
contemplating or flirting with Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholicism is be careful because any tradition that takes you away from the Bible is a tradition that will take you away from the God of the Bible. And the beauty of James Jordan's work and Peter Lightheart and many others has been has drawn me and many of you, whom I know personally, closer to the Bible. The closer you are to the Bible, the closer you are to the Word made flesh. Yeah, great question. Any other thoughts? I didn't come all the way here for no questions. <laughs> yeah. Could you speak to kind of the church's view of a lot of these heroes of the Bible who mm. have sordid lives and sinful <clears throat> things happen in their lives and there seems to be a simplistic, oh, well, he's a sinful guy, he can't be on God's side. And we lose a lot of the glory that's there. How do you... Yeah. It's, it's kind of a, it, it's, it's a, it's America, it's, it's evangelicals, moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's, it's their way of moralizing everything and turning to some behavioral example of um, naughty, nice. And that's a real danger because uh, biblical characters are much more complex than you give them credit for. The commentary we did on Jonah is sort of a revelation of that, right? Jonah goes through various layers. Uh, in chapter 1, he's called. He refuses the call. He rejects the call. By the end of chapter 1, he is repenting, and he is giving his life for the sake of the mariners. In chapter 2, you have a prayer that he's strung together from 20 different psalms. Right? It's really brilliant. In chapter 3, you have the, the, the evangelism to the Ninevites. And in chapter 4, you have Jonah wrestling with God. And God is always saying, do you have the right to be angry, Jonah? And he, but he doesn't tyrannize Jonah. He accepts Jonah in his, his state of grace. What's unique is that the way a lot of people have looked at Jonah or Samson, they have said things like, look how bad he is. And then the Bible literally says, and the Spirit of God was upon him. So there's a real disconnect between the way people think of morality and the work of the Spirit. We may not understand how Old Testament prophets and, and ambassadors function, but we do know one thing, is that when the Spirit of God is upon them, whatever the Spirit is doing, something is going to bring life. Because the Spirit hovers over creation and brings life. He is the, um, the, the connector of history. So the Spirit is on Samson quite a bit. Now there's a layers of sinful actions, but I think evangelicalism has trivialized characters and made them into little behavioral caricatures, and therefore they miss the complexity of the message. Great question. Yes, sir? Um, you had mentioned about um, how the Temple of Dagon had the pillars of kind of symbolic of like the foundation of the world and stuff. And I've read um, John Walton's book, uh, you know, Yep. Uh, you know, making the parallel between creation and Solomon's temple, yep. and like the pillars there being um, uh, the you know like symbolic mm -hmm. of the, the pillars of the earth. Um, do you do you see that as like those parallels? Like I do see those parallels. G.K. Buell has also a lot of great work of the mission of the temple of that. I think Genesis is paradigmatic for everything you're going to see in temple, synagogue, church ministry. So what you see in Genesis, you're going to see replayed again and again. If somebody said to me, what books of the Bible should I memorize? I would say, memorize Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and all these things will be added unto you. <laughs> because I think the creation account is is the, the, is the very synopsis of all of history. And so the, the temple imagery you see in 1 Samuel, uh, you see this morning when I uh, preach on, on David, in 1 Samuel is precisely the kind of language you see in Genesis. And so what's happening right now is God is building a house for himself, a new garden 
that will never be broken again. A new temple that will be that can never be destroyed. Yeah, that's great. One more thing, and then yes, back then, then, we'll, then I'll be available here for some questions afterwards. Yes, sir. Yeah, so you mentioned the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> yes. Uh, so now we have Balaam and Saul, and examples of the Spirit coming upon somebody <laughs> in the midst of uh, what would otherwise be ruled as something, you know, living. They weren't living the right lives in those times. So, um, as you said, the complexity of the way the Spirit works um, is not as simple as we like to make it out to be. So, how do you, how do we contrast those other two examples, uh, Balaam, Saul, and uh, Samson? You need a real. Uh, I'll just say this: you need a very well-developed theology of apostasy. If you don't, it's going to be really weird. You're not going to make sense of any of it. You need to understand the Spirit comes, accomplishes certain good things, but the Spirit can depart as a Shekinah glory can depart. The Spirit can be upon temples with the presence of God, and the Spirit can abandon temples by departing with the presence of God. So you need a theology that says the Spirit of God doesn't... If, if characters are complex, it's because the Spirit is complex. So if the first person of the, of the Trinity is complex, if our Lord is complex, the Spirit of God, who is the binder of history must be the master of complexity. So you must operate there. That's a great question. I wish I could elaborate more on that. I'd love to hear your thoughts, too. Thank you, everyone, for your time. Really appreciate it. Let's, let's worship together. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out more from Pastor Yuri Brito on Canon Plus.